Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Well, High Weirdness is here, and I'll be doing a book events in the next couple of months. This weekend, I'll be in LA on the 8th doing a book reading at Skylight Books, and on the 9th doing a lecture at Zebulon Cafe, a bit of a hangout session, both free events, uh, both starting at 5. Uh, then back here for a City Lights reading in the evening of Thursday the 13th, day after my birthday. And then I'm on the uh, plane to New York City doing two high weirdness events there on Monday the 17th. Morbid Anatomy is sponsoring me at the Greenwood Cemetery. It should be a fun place to, uh, to hang out. And then the next night I'll be in Manhattan at Assemblage Nomad. Uh, and you can find out more information about these events on my website, technosis, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com, under events. And I also wanted to announce that uh, I'm going to put Expanding Mind on ice this summer. I need to uh, take a break. I need to step back. Uh, and I have a very busy summer. And I've also been doing it for a decade and thinking about shifting it up a little bit, maybe not doing a weekly show, maybe doing a longer show, maybe doing a different show. Uh, so I'm going to step back and uh, cogitate over it. And the best way to keep up with me is to uh, sign up for my mailing list on technosis.com. So when you show up, you, there should be a little pop-up menu that says sign up for the mailing list. And I only put out uh, one a month at best, and um, I don't share the name. So uh, keep up with me there. Today we're going to be talking about meditation and authority, Buddhism and authority. How do we know what's what? in this scene. And when I began as a serious Zen practitioner in the 1990s, I, you know, I, I paid a lot of attention to contemporary Buddhism. I, I read Tricycle Magazine. I talked to people. Uh, I read stuff on the internet. It was kind of, you know, the proto-blog moment when the blogoverse was just kind of taking off. And I read a lot of books, uh, stuff that was coming out. And a lot of the themes there, you know, people were really wrestling with the relationship to psychology and neuroscience was just beginning. It's like something to talk about. Uh, the whole question of psychedelics had popped up in a tiny way and mostly been kind of batted down by uh, a lot of teachers who didn't really want to talk about their their past. And then there were a few uh, outliers who defended it, but it was a, quite a kind of recherche uh, topic at, the, at that time. And then some point around the early 2000s, mid 2000s, I just got tired of it. I got tired of contemporary Buddhist discourse. It seemed very mainstreamy and kind of assimilationist and, and not very edgy and not very interesting to me. I felt like I had sort of gotten the story and I didn't really identify as one of the people with a sort of uh, horse in the race. So I pretty much dropped it. Uh, I continued to read Dharma stuff, but either academic books or traditional materials in different traditions. Uh, and that seemed, that was more rewarding to me. And this has pretty much been the case uh, until relatively recently. Um, you know, I've dipped in now and again to the latest scuttlebutt, the latest scandal. Always, always tripped out by the scandals. We we've done a couple of shows on on some of that stuff. Uh, 
but I was sort of initiated into uh, a different sense of contemporary Buddhist and Dharmic discourse um, when I was interviewed by our guest today, Michael Taft, who, among other things, uh, does a, a wonderful show of meditational geekery called Deconstructing Yourself. And he, uh, he contacted me about doing a show about some of the stuff in High Weirdness, Robert Anton Wilson, Psychedelics in the 1970s. And frankly, I didn't really know what the show was about. So we did the show and it was all, all super fun and uh, had a great conversation and made a good connection. And then I you know, went home and I should have done my due diligence before, but I didn't. And then I was like, wow, what is this, what is this show about? And it turned out that like all the other people he was talking to were all these like super heavyweights in the uh, meditation Buddhist world. Uh, and I felt a little uncomfortable about that, but I was happy to be part of the part of the company. Um, and then I started listening to the show more and I realized that there's just been so much in uh, the discourse, so much, so many changes in the discourse. The blogovers exploded. All of these new kinds of books and all sorts of new angles, not just the sort of mainstreaming of mindfulness that we've talked about, kind of ad infinitum on the show, but really new approaches to meditation, new approaches to thinking about the Dharma that were that are more not even just secular, but kind of hard edged. Some of them strongly. Uh, geeky, some of them very uh, scientific in their approaches, some of them very resistant to religious ideas, the kind of nice, gentle Asian exotica that has sort of been the atmosphere around so much uh, Buddhism and so much meditation practice uh, in the West. And this all, this whole kind of world intrigued me very much because it begs this question about how do we learn? How do we know what to learn? Uh, what, how, do, how do we think about teachers? What do teachers do now if they're no longer religious authorities um, in this new world of mindfulness and uh, popular ideas of meditation and meditation apps and uh, all of the material on- online? How does one find uh, one's way through this? So I thought I'd uh, ask Michael on the show. We've uh, been having a good time talking about other things in occasional meetings. And so, Michael, thanks for joining us on Expanding Mind. Well, Eric, I can just say that I'm, I'm honored to be considered to be weird enough and interesting enough to be on Expanding Mind. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely a fan of the show. Uh, and I just, I don't know, I feel like it's a major antidote to the, like, I don't know, soul bleaching effects of consensus reality so thanks a lot for uh doing it for so long it's well that's good i really like that project. yeah thank you i mean d- did i did i characterize deconstructing yourself right i mean when you started i mean you you've, you know you've been a, a meditation teacher for a, for a long time you're an individual coach you work with companies uh, you've written books, uh, the, the Mindful Geek, I think, being the most, uh, with, with the, the title that's the most uh, of a giveaway of at least some of your approach. But you've been around the block for, you know, decades and decades working with Shinzen Young, lots of stuff. When you decided to do Deconstructing Yourself, and, you know, there's already been, uh, you know, there's a lot of Buddhist podcasts out there. There's a lot of stuff out there. What, what did you specifically want to do or, or kind of highlight with that show? Yeah, you know, it started out as a conversation between me and uh, Kenneth Falk. So for people who don't know Kenneth Falk, he's a a famous, uh, in in certain circles, as 
one of the uh, core leaders of the pragmatic Dharma movement, as it's called. Um, he would be lumped together with people like Daniel Ingram and Vince Horn and a few Robert Crouch, a few other people, as being kind of a new wave of Vipassana-style meditation teachers who are really interested in uh, almost like letting go of all theory and let's just keep doing weird practices and see what works uh, kind of approach. And Kenneth is, you know, has spent a lot of time in Burma, has spent a lot of time doing very hardcore uh, Vipassana. And he was out here in San Francisco. Uh, a few years ago, he lived here with his wife for, I think, a year and a half or maybe two years. And so I got a chance to hang out with him now and again. And I just like the guy. We just have a, a good vibe together. And he's hilarious. He likes science fiction. And he likes to talk about meditation geekery. So, so you know, my kind of guy. And we were having these long phone conversations. And at some point, I just thought, we should be recording these. Um because it wasn't like an interview at all. It was like we're just chopping it up about various practices, um, how we felt about them and how they related to different teachings. And so I, you know, I said, look, I'll send you a microphone. And he'd been in, you know, he'd been in rock bands for a long time in his like 20s. So I knew he could set it all up. But I'm just like, I'll buy the gear. I'll send it to you. I'll have gear on my end and we'll just record it and so we ended up recording something like six hours of conversation but the important part the important word there is conversation you know that's just me and him like talking about practice and um and people loved it and i loved it i like talking to people about that kind of stuff and, and um so the original vision was you know, me talking one-on-one -on -one with other teachers about practice or about their the stuff they're really interested in, but it's it's never really supposed to veer off into an interview format, even though it does do that every once in a while. Um, interviews, the the whole structure and setup of interviews is just deadening. You know, <laughs> totally uninteresting to me. Uh, and uh, whereas when it's an actual conversation, that becomes alive, right? You've even had shows where you talk quite a bit about that whole idea of conversation being more interesting. And, and so we just happen to have these three conversations. And, you know, I'm, I'm very tech friendly and I, I set up the whole um, podcast universe for myself. And, and then uh, it just kind of took off from there. Yeah, I mean, it's funny about the, the conversational bit because uh, I, I've often, even though I've been doing this for a long time and I'm really committed to the idea of conversation, I still notice there's kind of a tension, not so much because I, I just want to slip back into the interview mode, which can be so boring in some ways, but uh, just in terms of you want to get some get certain things out of the uh, of the person, make sure that the listener knows about X, Y, and Z. And so it's, a, it's an interesting... Um, uh, balancing act, um, and and you know, it's I, I would say the same thing when I listen to your show, where it's like you're definitely asking leading questions and pointing in certain directions, but at the same time being willing to, you know, go down a strange uh, cul-de-sac or uh, or or take it in another uh, a, another zone. 
I think the zone I want to go to now is just this idea of the pragmatic Dharma. I mean, in a way, that's an old idea in Buddhism. I mean, I think that in Amer- in Western Buddhism, when uh, especially Brits started embracing Burmese uh, style Buddhism in the late 19th century, one of the features that all they they saw in it is like, oh, this is sensible. It's it's sort of scientific. It's um, experience, you know, it's like empirical. So there was always this, this idea that there was something kind of pragmatic about the practice, particularly the practice of meditation. So when you're talking about this new school, and this is again, I'm just curious because I don't, in a way, I feel like I've missed some of this history because I wasn't really paying attention to it. What was seeing, what was more specific about this newer school of pragmatism? when it came to particularly Vipassana, uh, the kind of Vipassana practices that come out of the Theravadan tradition that sparked this initial uh, love affair back in the 19th century. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, if we look at the British involvement with Theravada practice, you know, it was created for them as an, you know, intentionally anti-colonial gesture. Right, um, uh, the the Ceylonese and uh, uh, in Burma and in Thailand, these people knew that the British Christian mis- missionaries were going to attempt to shred their native Buddhist religion and to use that as a way, like a wedge, to bring in even more colonial forces and, and control. And so they, on purpose, built a version of Buddhism that is modernist. It was intentionally modernist. It includes ideas stolen directly out of German Romanticism, which is part of the modernist project. It included ideas directly out of science or science-like thinking, again, a big part of modernism. And it's often called Protestant Buddhism because that's the other part of the modernist project, right? So it's no wonder that these uh, British guys really liked Theravada Buddhism at the end of the 19th century because it was a product, you know, that had been basically, specific, you know, it was bespoke for them. You know, it was a creation made for them. So um, this whole idea, uh, the whole Buddhism that we have in America, in the West, you know, and, and when I say that, I, I'm, I'm not talking about the uh, Asian communities, Buddhism, you know, that's different. But if we're talking about like sort of what we might kind of call white boy Buddhism or whatever, that's intentionally modernist. And the whole the whole scientific view of it and the whole rational view of it and the whole way it's sort of uh, very non-ritualized and stuff like that is a is a creation, you know, that occurred in the in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, previous to that, most Theravada practice, almost all of it at that point, was nothing but ritual. They would take books like the Vishuddhi Magga and chant them rather than using them as meditation manuals. Anyway. It's funny, what, what I'm thinking of, this is, this is inspiring a, a memory of uh, when uh, my wife and I were in, were in Kushinagara for our, our honeymoon. We went, on, we went to the sacred sites uh, of, of the Buddha's life, the eight sacred spots. And uh, we met this groovy 
Theravad monk, you know, he had like cool shades and he spoke English better than most. And, you know, he was put together well. He had a good vibe. So we really liked him. So we were hanging out a bunch. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm doing a meditation class. And so, okay, we'll join on, join in. And it was him and some other young monks. So he was clearly just kind of practicing. Like he wasn't in a position of authority, but he was still sort of teaching other uh, monks around his age. And what was interesting was he started, you know, he was kind of giving a riff about it. We sat for a while and then started talking about the practice. And he was saying, I was like, yeah, if you keep doing this, you know, you're going to be able to fly and uh, yeah. you know, go to different <laughs> domains and like see the uh, around the world. And it was all the like magic stuff, the city stuff. And I just, you know, like do not associate cities with Theravon practice because of it, it's been so the experience my experience of it in the west and even to some extent in the west idea of what's been what's going on or what's valuable in the east has been so rationalist and so pragmatic uh that it was really kind of an amazing uh flash like i got something about how constructed all of this is uh and and, and also how you don't need you know, the shamanic influence of the Vajrayana and, and, you know, crazy Tibetan culture and all that to have full-on magic uh, inside your Dharmic meditation practice. So it was quite, a, quite an interesting reminder of the breadth of associations and goals that can be embedded in this practice. Yeah, right. I mean, you even take uh, guys who help to invent modernists Buddhism, like uh, Ajahn Moon, and a while ago I was in a retreat center and uh, on retreat, and I, uh, they had all the beautiful texts from the lineage, and and one of them was like the history of Ajahn Moon, his biography, and you know I have a background in 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 Hindu tantra, you know lots of Hindu tantra practice, tons of magic, tons of that sort of thing. And, you know, living in India and engaging with that, with Indian culture in that way on its own terms. And, um, and you know, I just assumed none of that is in Theravada Buddhism. And I opened the Ajahn Moon book and started reading and the whole thing, he's channeling angels and he's having visions. And I mean, the whole thing is just completely <laughs> steeped in this kind of... Uh, crazy shamanic beautiful wonderful deep magic space right and i'm like that guy you know ajahn moon is uh sort of the root guru for all these western lineages like here you know in america where we've got places like spirit rock and and um ims that are so psychological and calm and rational and if you have any kind of, you know, sort of event at one of their retreats, they'll send you home, you know, and, and it's just shocking to see what, like, the, the actual practice is like in its, in, in its native tradition. Well, it so, also raises this question, like, about, you know, how much those magical realms, let's say, are open for at least a lot of people when they do a lot of meditation, like, one way or the other, you're going to open that stuff up and the tradition you're working in might have ways of kind of containing it or teaching you to kind of avoid it or sort of not look at it. Um, but if you have hundreds, thousands, 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people doing these practices, especially if they're approaching it from a from a pra- pragmatic perspective, paradoxically, you might wind up with more magic because people are going, well, what does this actually do when I do this or when I do that, when I do this? And it's like, wow, things get really wild and not simply about, you know, fulfilling some notion of seeing the elements of existence and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, lights, colors, other domains, beings, sense of flying, you know, all these sort of more magical experiences seem paradoxically kind of the the sorts of things that you might come up with if you approach it as a pragmatist. That's right. Especially as you know, uh, Eric, if you're, if you do a lot of high concentration stuff, like really working on your concentration practice, you're going to run into some very weird shit, whether it's, you know, we can talk about the ontology of it. Is it really magic? Is it just whatever, but it's definitely very weird, right? Uh, in the high concentration zone. And just one little thing I want to, you know, Kenneth Folk and Daniel Ingram and those guys, those are the, they, they are in, or at least let's say Kenneth Folk and Vince Horn, those guys are, are pragmatic Dharma, right? And it's sort of a specific label. I'm not actually like under that rubric. Um, but, uh, it's interesting. Their teacher, um, was this guy, Bill Hamilton, and he was really good friends with my main teacher, Shinzen Young. And so there's a deep, you know, uh, resonance and bond and similarity in the way we talk about sitting and the way we sit, because these two guys, Bill, who is uh, dead now, and Shinzen uh, hung out a bunch and compared notes and talked a lot. So what would be the difference? Um, But... I think it's mainly just uh, that Shenzhen is actually a a Zen guy, you know, his real practice is Zen, but he has uh, done quite a bit of Theravada practice and taught and, you know, learned to present what he's doing in this very rational, linear, uh, mindfulness way. Um. And so it's like, it's, it's a lot of, this is just me talking, by the way, Shenzhen might <laughs> totally disagree, but anyway, there's this, um, you know, he's talking about it in, in a Theravada way and yet leading one into this very Mahayana or Vajrayana style practice. Cause he was actually a Shingon monk, uh, early on too. Um, and, and so I, I think of it as sort of a three vehicle kind of practice, whereas, um, you know, you talk to Kenneth, he's of course, he's a, you know, very high adept practitioner of all sorts of stuff, but he comes back over and over again to like Theravada practice purely. Well, here, this kind of raises like the sort of bigger question I wanted to ask you about is, is just like, there's still the presumption, even though there's multiple teachers and multiple teachings and most, most multiple paths, that there are these stages of experience that we can talk about these stages, that we can agree upon them, that people can even get checked with sensitive teachers and, oh, you've got, reached this part, here's a problem that you're going to face, da-da-da. And, and I'm, I, I get sort of confused. I'm a little like fundamentally confused about both in from my own view and then just generally uh, 
Are we talking about meditation as something that has universal stages that are just articulated and emphasized from different perspectives? Or are we talking about something where there are many, many forks on the road and those forks, those decisions or whatever, you know, happens to you or whatever teacher intervenes at that point, someone who's more Theravada and someone who's open to these, uh, to the other vehicles in some way or another, actually kind of take you in a different direction. How, how have you come to, I mean, you've worked very deeply with different traditions. How have you come to think about that movement between traditions or teachers or uh, practices? Yeah, it, you know, this is one of those like perennial unanswerable questions. Um, is it just one sort of like path of awakening and we're all taking different paths on it? You know, uh, sort of uh, the perennial philosophy view. There's another view that I, I really find amusing and also applicable, which is sort of the opposite the, uh, of the perennial philosophy. It's like, no, we're all doing the same practice, but based on the philosophy our, of our tradition, getting to a different place. Or is it something in between? And I think it's something in between because, because yes, the practices are uh, different but related. And yes, the philosophies, uh, you know, the view behind practices can be quite different. Like where we think we're trying to get, are we looking at discontinuity and impermanence? Are we looking at, you know, the, the radiant uh, uh, Buddha mind or what, you know, what are we, where do we think we're going? And so we have these different philosophies and yet uh, at, at the, the ground of it all is the human being and we're all just human beings, right? So it might be that it's going to converge on certain basic experiences, no matter what the philosophy is and no matter what practice you're doing. So, so you go ahead. Uh, I'm just wondering whether like people faced with this environment we're in now where there's more secular teaching, there are more secular styles of teaching, which may be still rooted in traditions that like people come out of teachers and some of these teachers or the people themselves have had deep, you know, more traditional background, but there's more language and avail availability for, let's call it consciousness hack, a consciousness hacking approach to meditation, even meditation that's very, you know, sophisticated in its relationship with the traditions. But it's it, there's a sense of, I don't want to say free-for-all, but a sense that there's, it's like the field is open in a way. And that opening creates very different relationships between teacher and student, very different sense of like what a tradition or an authority is. Like in a way, it's sort of from a religious point of view, you'd say there's sort of a crisis of authority because you no longer have these sort of traditional forms of transmission of who gets to be a teacher and they you know, they work their own, you know, their own singular styles within a, a sort of set of expectations. And now people are like, in a way, picking and choosing and not in a negative sense of, of being superficial. But as you said at the initial, like, let's not, you know, let's leave the theory at the door. Let's actually figure out what's happening in these practices and let's come from there in terms of you know describing systems coming up with tools coming up with refining methods that then other people can come to to use in their own practice and in a way kind of leave that religious tradition framework behind them 
So I just love to hear how you see people navigating that and how authority and transmission and teacher-student relationships are changing in this sort of what seems to me to be a rising era of this kind of pragmatic, generally pragmatic approach, not the specific guys you were talking about, but just this generally pragmatic or kind of hardcore approach uh, to Dharma. Yeah, you know, part of the reason I went into that whole spiel about Buddhist modernism, which, by the way, there's a fabulous book called The Making of Buddhist Modernism by a scholar, I think his name is like David McMahon, McMahon, something like that. I don't know how to say it right, but it's very worth reading. But part of the reason I went into that is because we're moving into something very different right now. Like uh, that kind of Western hippie, um, you know, uh, modernist Buddhism that came in the 50s and 60s to the West in a big way is just done. You know, it's run its course. And what comes next, let's, we'll call it like something grandiose, like the fourth turning of the wheel, uh, is anybody's guess. But one of the features of it, I can think of several features. One of the features of it that seems to be arising is um, this collapsing of the teacher-student hierarchy. And of course, that's in our society in general, right? I mean, you can have a 19-year-old kid bring out an app and just destroy a corporation or whatever, the, the, and you know, become a, 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 a huge in the in the post-capitalist universe or whatever, some kind of luminary and not even have a driver's license yet or whatever. And it's, it's um, this is happening in Dharma as well, right? Um, the whole idea of, you know, the, the, the guy who, who has the 50 years of experience who's gonna tell you what to do is, is really collapsing. And uh, people are still willing to listen to that person and still willing to talk to them about meditation and see what they have to say about it. But that's it. I mean, they're not going to get any, um, you know, like, hey, they're not going to have the halo of being extra holy or being able to tell you what to do about your life or anything like that. And I, you know, I think that's a big improvement. Um, so this is one of the features uh, that we're seeing, right? That So we've got the San Francisco Dharma Collective that started in October after uh, Against the Stream collapsed. They're in the mission. And um, so I'd been teaching at that center for a couple of years and, and against, the, you know, after some shenanigans with Against the Stream, they collapsed and the students of that Sangha just said, no, we want a Sangha. And we're going to we're going to just set up our own uh, center. And they got lawyers and they got people who know how to do 501c3 and people who could organize it. And they made it all happen. It was amazing. And the founding principle of the place is, you know, there is no guiding teacher. And so this is this is brand new in in Western Dharma. And maybe in Dharma in general. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, I mean, I, I you know, I, I was looking for a place to do the San Francisco Psychedelic Sangha, and I asked you, and you suggested that this place might work out, and it's really been wonderful to do this, uh, the Psychedelic Sangha at the SF Dharma Collective, 
and um, the fact that they rose from the ashes of, of a, actually a particularly nasty guru, um, uh, what you know, uh, scandal. Um, we can, we don't need to go into the details of it, but it, it really was. Uh, there's something kind of beautifully emblematic of the founding of the place that that in this this unwillingness to let the souring of the of the guru, which is clearly a major theme throughout contemporary Buddhism, but you know other things as well, to let that stop the sangha. This kind of because the sangha on its own. Is this is a peer-to-peer situation, you know? And I I've long been really a fan of uh, what I call peer-to-peer spirituality, where it's more like a network of friendships, some t- some of which have a you know a top-bottom relationship at least some of the time, where someone is like more experienced or more knowledgeable about something, but the the exchange of ideas and practices and enthusiasms uh, go both ways and have more of a, of a horizontal network-like character. And we kind of find our way through these networks and sometimes have teachers, but it's a much, it's a much different kind of role than this, uh, than this guru model. And there's something about just emphasizing the, the, the sangha or the collective uh, that seems really good when we were naming our psychedelic Buddhist group, you know, the reason we decided to just call it the psychedelic sangha is that, look, if you talk to somebody who who wasn't into psychedelics, who was a Dharma practitioner, a serious Buddhist, they might say, look, the Buddha has nothing to do with psychedelics. I don't think that's true, but they might say that. And you're like, okay, you're right. The Dharma really doesn't have anything to do with psychedelics. You know, so you, you, you look, you got to look pretty hard to find, you know, explicit things that are going to support a, a, a drug-taking approach or even, you know, a wild Dionysian visionary approach. I mean, it's there, certainly in the Vajrayana, but, you know, okay, I'll give them that. But they can't say there's no point in the Sangha. The people, the people who are seeking, who are seeking together, separate, communicating, blogging, reading, writing, those people, a lot of them anyway, enough of them to make it worthwhile, are psychedelic. So by switching the, the 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 angle to emphasize the sangha, you kind of reorganize this the hierarchy into something that is more uh, collective, hier- uh, non hierarchical, networking, and that's sort of the feeling I get when I go into some of these Buddhist discussions online, where you really get a sense that people are like really enjoying the the freedom from that traditional hierarchical situation. But I just love to hear from you, since you've been navigating this realm so much, like more about what is this what is this this form that's emerging? What are some of the problems that you see, even if it's a if it's a step in the right direction? Uh, you know, what are the kinds of issues that come up as people really recognize that in a way the emperor has no clothes and we're kind of doing it together in a sort of uh, free-for-all situation? Yeah, I remember back in the 90s when Thich Nhat Hanh came out and said, uh, the future Buddha, Mayatri, the future Buddha is a Sangha. It will not be a person. It will be a Sangha. And uh, I'm just remembering that now as we're talking, because I'm like, wow, he was right. You know, it does seem to be developing that way. It's really interesting that he saw that even, you know, 20 years ago. Um, or 
25 years ago. <clears throat> but, you know, we're right now, in terms of practice, we are living in some kind of golden age of Buddhist practice in the West. It, there are more people meditating and getting really good meditation instruction and doing hardcore, real, effective meditation practice and actually, I think, in my opinion and many teachers' opinions, uh, sort of like hitting some of these um, milestones of basic awakening pretty quick um, and in big numbers, like way more than has ever occurred in the West anyway in the past. So this is, you know, it's an amazing, amazing time. Uh, there's there's meditation teachers and meditation manuals available that work right, and there's such a um, uh, there's such a community online of people talking to each other about it. It's just it reminds me of when we read about India in the Buddhist time, where there was just zillions of you know what they call those guys some. Um, samanas or whatever they're the like the wandering kind of like meditation good guys not necessarily sadhus but sort of like wandering meditators and they would all meet at these roadhouses and talk about their practices right the buddha was one of them and so it was just like the whole culture was working on meditation and they really i mean obviously came up with some amazing stuff and it seems like, you know, uh, the whole Western culture isn't doing this, but a big subculture is. And so in that way, the whole flattened hierarchy, Sangha, like, let's all just talk about it in this very pragmatic way. Let's all do shop talk on meditation. That's really working. Um, in terms of the problems, there are some problems. You know, I think that... Um, uh, something I see happening is very commonly is people will get kind of a little bit of awakening and then decide they're going to start teaching, which in a way is cool. Like, yeah, go help people do this. But they they don't often have some of the really important understandings about the fact that that they only, what am I trying to say? their experience is limited. They haven't seen the 97 ways someone can go wrong with this, or mm -hmm. when they don't, they might not know what it looks like when someone's starting to crack up or go psychotic or that sort of thing. So there's, you know, I hope that just the overall, you know, soup of the big Dharma Sangha, you know, will help to mitigate that. And I think there's a sort of a meritocracy thing happening where the better teachers will rise to the top and so on um, and become stronger voices. Um, but I think there is potentially a, a problem of the blind leading the blind a little bit. And, um, and furthermore, I think that there isn't currently a, a uh, philosophical structure that works you know, for to underpin the thing. The philosophy we've been using up till now is a kind of a modernist take on Mahayana, basically, right? But up until about 1875, you know, no Buddhist in history had ever thought about Buddhism in the way it's presented now, right? It's completely a new creation. 
But that new modernist creation does not really fit what we're doing here. And we're, you know, we need to put together a kind of a um, something beyond just the pragmatic sort of go to the meditation gym understanding, even though that's really cool and it's really revolutionary. It's part of what's so great about Kenneth and part of what I always appreciated about Shinzen so much. I mean, Shinzen's an, an amazing teacher, but he's just willing to drop every pretense and just talk nakedly about the details of his own practice, no matter how um, gauche that is, especially in Buddhist circles. So um, <clears throat> that's wonderful. And yet there, what's missing is a, any sort of conceptual framework to hang this all together on. Yes. The person who... Keep going. The, person doing the, the person doing the best work on this is David Chapman. I mean, he's a great guy. He's got he's got a website called meaningness.com where he's trying to show, you know, where um, where eternalism falls to the ground, where nihilism comes up short, where modernism has come up short, where postmodernism doesn't quite get there, and how we can start to work with a really sophisticated understanding of these ideas to come to something sort of beyond that. And it's, you know, very informed by the work of Keegan and all this developmental stuff. And he tends to call it meta-systematicity. Um, so sort of like post-postmodernism would be another way of describing it. And I really like that take. Um, and at the same time, that's not a fully fleshed out, you know, how uh, uh, philosophical backdrop for all of this. I'm talking a lot with Vince Horn about an idea we came up with to call it like metadharma and, you know, um, really start to, to investigate some of the features of this, such as, you know, flattening of the hierarchy and this sort of metasystematicity, like there's no one. So it's a pretty postmodern idea. There's no one meta narrative that covers every aspect of this so we have to be willing to work with several different narratives and so on well i think that one of the key things that needs to happen uh and in my own work i try to do it not so much in terms of the dharma but is is to recognize there's a difference between postmodernism as in anything goes give up the master narrative, good, you know, good luck kid kind of situation where you just sort of, that tends towards nihilism. Yeah, and, that's uh, just nihilism. Right. And a pluralism that recognizes that the perspectival nature of reality is stitched all the way down and all the way up and that we are in that condition and therefore are in some sense condemned to move between perspectives not necessarily having a reason always to go from A to B or to reframe one system in terms of another system and that the suppleness of movement between frames, the, the meta action, the action of the meta is, uh, is real tricky. It, it involves both intuition and reason. It, 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 it's, it can, you know, it, it might even involve magic, or at least in, in some sense of the term and it, it might even involve meaning and non-meaning right i mean exactly at the same time exactly yeah. but i like i love the idea of the metadharma not just because i think it ex it describes what's happening within practice but because it it also holds out the possibility for the development of a more general skill set 
cognitive approach, even psychological stance that seems to me really necessary right now, which is the confidence and ability to move between frames and not need to insist on a dominant frame, but at the same time, not just slipping into that postmodern nihilism or even a just sort of like, well, everybody has their own perspective, man. Like, that's not what we're talking about. But there has to be a way for people to be encouraged that it's okay to move between frameworks. I mean, it's amazing how intelligent people can be, people I meet who are very intelligent, and yet they hold their sort of dominant frame, whether it's, uh, you know, Marxism or a certain kind of uh, social justice or a certain kind of, you know, whatever, libertarian idea about how things work, and they're really holding on to it. And you're like, oh, you know, it's a pretty complex world. So you, you really have to learn to be supple as you move through things not denying that there isn't something, I mean, there's a kind of developmental process to it, but it's not easily charted, at least in my opinion. It doesn't fit into a, you know, an integral, uh, a Ken Wilber integral map uh, as, as easily as a lot of people uh, want it to. And to me, that, that perhaps some of the tools for that larger navigation lie precisely in deep pr- phenomenological practice with this metadharma that you're talking about i think that's exactly right eric and and you know whether it's very deep meditation practice or you know you're doing the psychedelic sangra uh, similar things can come up with psychedelic practice similar but different stuff you know um it's just amazing how many people who are doing very very deep work kind of insist on being good little buddhist believers or you know, it's not that that's where the Dharma in America has ended up. You know, it started out as kind of wild and wild and woolly. And now you've just um, up until very recently, you've got the kind of like Buddhist church. It's that Protestant Buddhism thing going on. And everyone's just supposed to believe the Four Noble Truths and stuff. And in the last few years, it's finally breaking open and finally, you know, reaching outward and going deeper into structures of belief. And I, I think that we're looking at a very um, fru- like potentially fruitful generative situation that's going to give birth not to one vision of metadharma, but to many, many, many visions and potentially uh, just a lot of very rich territory for people. Yeah, so Very here's excited about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. It's 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 fascinating. It's it's the most to me it's the most interesting place right now for for at least for me. Um and I feel it, it, this wonderful kind of mixture of familiarity because I've been around the world. I've done a lot of practice. I'm I have a, you know, evolved meditation practice and at the same time I'm kind of new to a lot of these figures and a lot of these different approaches, so there's sort of a freshness to it. But there's there's one response that I keep having when I read a lot of these materials and approach a lot of different kinds of uh, teachers, and this you know has something to do with my grounding in uh, Soto Zen and in Dogen, where there's a great emphasis on not having gaining ideas on not thinking you're you're arriving at a place and then moving on to another place. It's this this tremendous sort of self-deconstructive, pull the rug out from under your own aspiration, 
you know, practice his realization, this kind of thing. And we, you know, I, I don't, we can go into that, but that's not really the question. The question I have is partly because I come from that. When I look at a lot of this new Dharma, this pragmatic Dharma, I see a lot of like competitive hustling for the various uh, brass rings of achievement. It, and it, it's, it, and it's at its worst to me, it smells a lot like the same old achievement society that we get with whatever, uh, you know, extreme sports or, uh, you know, Navy SEAL training or whatever it is. Like that this idea that, you know, you can perfect the human and we, we, we got you got to work really hard and then you achieve a point. Now I'm a stream. I've achieved stream entry. And that gives me certain privileges in terms of how confident I am about how I describe things. And I sit there from my kind of Dogen perspective and go, I have no doubt that something profound happened to you and maybe it works in terms of these books or different systems or different ways of talking about stages of enlightenment. But I'm I'm really wary of an emphasis on a kind of ladder-like progression through states and stages in, at, at the end of which you achieve illumination you achieve awakening you achieve stream entry and it just it seems to fit really poorly with our society right now with the kind of pragmatism about achievement in the world about achievement through technology of knowing all the technology so that you can get the effect that you want there's something about that whole form of the ego that seems to be supported by some of this pragmatism in a way that again from a kind of more Zen psychedelic paradoxical uh, cosmic trickster point of view, which is my native temperament, it seems really kind of crass and not helpful and very, very male, very, very like dude. Um, so I just love to hear your response to that, to my, my feeling there, whether it's, <laughs> whether yeah, it's about well, me personally or whether it's about the, <laughs> the thing I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, amen. Um, I, I think you see the same thing with psychedelics right now. I mean, there's this whole, it's, it's very common, at least in the, in the Bay area to find someone whose deal is, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm a tech CEO and I'm going to be at the, like the pinnacle of human achievement by like taking acid and skydiving. And I'm always in a flow state and I'll also be a stream enterer, you know, and it's, it's just totally, um, a vomit-inducing kind of paradigm, right? It's just just taking it way too far. Um, and so it's not just meditation. It's psychedelics. It's everything. That's that's one part of our culture right now. For um, sure. That, it, that is just, you know, I'm so glad you called it out. And I made sure the this kind of um, new uh, meditation movement can smell that way often. And yet, you know, it's a reaction to something else. It's a reaction to the kind of culture of meditation where nothing's ever supposed to happen. And, and certainly teachers aren't supposed to talk about where they're at. And it's all some kind of big secret and somehow taboo to ever have anything happen. And so you get these situations, and I've seen a bunch of them, where, you know, there's sanghas where everyone's been meditating for 20 years and nobody's learned anything because the the bar is so low or if it's not low it's so obfuscated and so taboo to talk about it that all sharpness and clarity of practice has just 
shit the bed. It's completely appalling. Yeah. And, and I, so, I want to I want to support that that is also my impression of a lot of Soto communities. I mean, you can't really know what's what's inside somebody else's meditation. Just like, you know, the, the, the true Christians acknowledge you can't really know someone's heart and their relationship <laughs> to God. Uh, and but yet to, you know, also to sort of make a judgment from being one foot in, one foot out. There's very much a sort of low uh, low leveling and particularly a lack of clarity. Like when you talk about the quality of clarity, which is a wonderful quality because it's both a conceptual, intellectual, critical quality it's that's, that is critical for criticism and a quality of meditation. Obviously, it's a different thing, but there's a relationship to it. And it seems to me that one of the, the leitmotifs of this new Dharma is something like clarity. Like even if you're talking about visionary weird shit, let's you got to describe what's going on. If you're going to say anything about it, it's not about obfuscating or acting like there's some big mystery in the room that you can't use language because it's ineffable. That's tedious. It's go for it. Try to describe what you're what's happening. Try to describe how you got there. And we're all in this zone where we're kind of trying to intensify the clarity to not just fall into these sort of religious or kind of faith-based or sort of sludgy practice ruts. Yeah, I think, you know, like all um, reactions, it's gone too far right now. It's, it is get, it gets real acquisitive. It gets real spiritually materialistic. Um, But I think we'll come back to a balance. I hope we come back to a balance. And um, I think, what we're seeing is something that it's one of the actually beautiful contributions of Western culture is, you know, this kind of public discourse where you can have like a Nobel prize winning scientist and any first year college student is able to ask him hard questions and he has to be able to answer them. Right. It's just public. He's not above being questioned. And I think, at its best, the kind of um, new practice based on this sangha, the soup of the sangha all working together, the electric energy of people talking and comparing notes and looking what they're doing and looking at what happens, even with all its downsides, has this big upside of being explicit, of being public of being not secret, not hidden, not inside the teacher's fist. And you have to, you know, clean the kitchen for 40 years before he tells you how to do the technique. It's like, no, we're going to put it all out there and actually start comparing notes, right? To me, that's that's like something that's been developed in, in, in the world in the past several hundred years that meditation tradition was sorely lacking ever since, let's say, maybe Nalanda University got turned into a grease spot. You know, it's there just hasn't been that much comparison of what we're all doing and what works for who and how it works. So I think that there's a real potential, again, to um, be really creative here and come up with new stuff and get a real sense of a a more mature sense of what's possible and um, and maybe after a few of these initial awakenings, the really a, a more mature understanding that after that, things get really broad and really wide and 
and who knows where you're going and, and it's more Dogen type perspective, right? Yeah, um, that that seems to be a really, really good way to, to think that. What do you think we could be doing now to, I don't know, to cultivate that, to, to help that larger field along? I mean, you, you mentioned the, the San Francisco Dharma Collective as an example of a kind of institution that is in, in keeping with this emerging sensibility. But in terms of either individual practice or groups or discourse itself, what do you think is something that, that people could be doing to, to help nurture this fourth turning? Well, like with all things that are worth doing, you know, this is, this is a, a deep, rich, engaged pursuit. And just being shoved off into one little, you know, sectarian cubbyhole is really empathetical to what's happening here. And so it requires people to understand uh, the history of Buddhism and a lot of different practices deeply, and even the history of other practices and other practice traditions, Hindu tradition and so on, deeply, and to be informed. So, you know, getting informed and actually doing lots of different types of stuff really helps. Um, again, we're in an information-rich time, so that turns out to be not that hard to do. So that when, you know, you're contributing to the discussion, you're not only contributing from your own experience, but from, you know, uh, an informed perspective. And I think that really helps. And I think the other thing I just want to come back to, and I know that, you know, you're uh, of a similar mind, but it's just like uh, people got to understand that none of this, like, this isn't about being a good little believer, you know, and the and the, the Buddha is going to save you. You know, that's just not the game here. And so I, I really want to just put that out as a challenge to 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 people and say, you know, there isn't one right religion, there isn't one right practice, there isn't one view that's going to somehow like save you as long as you believe it right? Or stick to it somehow. Well, you know what? I think that's going to have to be the place that we end. So I think that's uh, worked out quite well. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Taft, uh, thanks for uh, speaking with us on, on Expanding Mind. It was a treat. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. All right. And until uh, next week, folks, keep your minds open. Keep your minds open.